Amen. If you can go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word, be in 2 Samuel chapter 15 this morning. It is our aim to complete the entire chapter, though I'm going to only read verses 1 through 12 at the beginning. So 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 12, as we look at Absalom's rebellion today. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who had any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy grew strong. For the people with Absalom continually increased in number. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Father, you are entirely um, more faithful to us than we are to you. More faithful to us than we could ever deserve. Great indeed is your faithfulness to your people. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that you might exalt him in our sight as we proclaim your word this morning. We ask this in his precious name, the precious name of King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. So again, I I did read verses 1 through 12. But what I want to do is kind of just walk quickly through the chapter just so you have it in mind. We're going to read some portions as we go. won't take up the whole text though. So... In case you didn't have the opportunity to read it this week, let me just walk through it for you very quickly. As we just read, Absalom, the son of David, has staged a coup. He is growing stronger and stronger, and David is about to be exiled from Jerusalem. He hears words that the hearts of the people have gone after Absalom. So he says, arise and let us flee. His servants say, we're with you. Ready to do whatever you command. So they arise and flee from Jerusalem. So David leaves Jerusalem. He descends down to the brook of Kidron and descends up to the Mount of Olives to, as the text says, worship God in verse 32. But along that course, he encounters three individuals whom he addresses. 
The first in verses 18 through 23, where he addresses Ittai, the Philistine, who had just recently at, uh, arrived at Jerusalem, and, and he wants to go with David. So David attempts to persuade him, hey dude, you're, you're new here, don't worry about this, just go on, go back to Jerusalem. But he will not be persuaded and instead talks David into allowing him to go and continues on with David. Then we come to the priest, Zadok and Abathar. Zadok is addressed. And they bring out the Ark of the Covenant and go. Uh, they're going to take it with them. But David commands them to take it back to his city in Jerusalem. And then he sanctions them to work as spies on his behalf. The final character we meet in verse 32 is a man by the name of Hushai, who's going to come into play even larger next week. He's one who comes to David as his faithful friend, who also wants to go with David. David tells him that he would be a burden if he went, but if he returned to the city, he might overthrow the counsel or advice of Ahithophel, which we'll see next week is exactly what he does. Okay, so that's an overview. Let's return back to the beginning of the chapter and work our way through it. Really what we see here, stop me if you heard this before, is that Israel is in trouble. Again. <laughs> right? We, we should be used to this theme by now, shouldn't we? But, but we know this is not good. But I want us to be reminded to keep this chapter, though, in the context of the flow of redemptive history. What we mean by that is the history of the scriptures. They're, the Bible is one story made it up of 66 books that are really one book. And it's the story of God saving his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we need to keep this chapter in its context through that flow as we've encountered it from Genesis to this point right here in 2 Samuel 15. In other words, don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. This is part of the children of Adam who are banished from God. It's the unfolding story of God's plan to bless a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation by, as we saw last week, bringing the banished back, filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the sea. Israel is part of this plan. And right now, actually, they're a sensual part of this plan, but they've got a huge problem. There's trouble in River City. Since Israel has been redeemed in Egypt through that Exodus event, Israel has lived on a fairly steady diet of trouble, really brought on by their own sin. Once again, here in chapter 15, transgressions have led to trouble. Israel has a ruined ruler, a seditious son, and a corrupt Core, and if you are Southern Baptist, you know that's your outline, right? All that alliteration. You know how long it takes me in the thesaurus to come up with that? No. Um, all right. We'll see each of those in turn. First, we see Israel's ruined ruler. In one sense, we could just take this up as we saw it last week in chapter 14. David, David's a very distorted, perverted image of his Lord and King who, as we saw last week, devises devices to bring back the banished. Of course, a more appropriate place to begin, if we're going to consider how this ruler is ruined, is to go all the way back to David's sin in chapter 11, where he commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband Uriah, where that really derailed the train that is still off the tracks. At the beginning of chapter 15, though, we're reminded that David is a ruined ruler once again. His sin has not ruined him completely by the grace and mercy of God, but... But David's been tainted. 
We're a long way from the Goliath conquering David we knew back in 1 Samuel 17. But specifically what we see here in 2 Samuel 15 is is we're reminded that, that David has failed to discern or judge according to the Lord's standard. That's really his issue here. In fact, it's his issue in a lot of places. David has failed to discern or judge according to the Lord's standard. Right? In chapter 11, David's the one that tells Joab, do not consider this thing to be evil. The thing being putting an innocent man to death so David could sleep with his wife. He says, don't let this thing be an evil. Not, Not great judgment according to God's rule. In fact, awful, wicked judgment according to God's rule. In chapter 12, David fails to discern the parable that Nathan comes with is about him. Not necessarily a sin on David's part, but but doesn't that certainly uh, show you evidence of some sort of obtuseness here? In chapter 13, David fails to recognize evil on two separate occasions. First sending his daughter Tamar to be humiliated by his son Amnon. Then sending Amnon to be murdered by his other son Absalom. You seeing a pattern yet? In chapter 14, David is once again taken in by a parable to expose his own evil. So the one thing that David does not really seem to be able to do is to discern and judge rightly. That's really important for what we encounter here in the opening verses of chapter 15. Once again, David is blind to the evil intentions of one of his children. Here, Absalom comes with a request and petition, much like he did in chapter 13. David sends him off in peace. In a sense, unknowingly blessing and sanctioning the very coup that is about to take place. See, the trouble with David's failure to discern and judge according to the Lord's standard is, it's kind of his full-time job. That's what a king does, (laughs) That's what kings do. Chapter 15 reminds us of the reason it's a problem that David has failed to discern or judge according to the Lord's standard. is because this is what kings are supposed to do. Kings issue judgments. Kings decide matters. They even execute justice. This is why when men who had disputes were coming to Jerusalem, everyone expected a king to discern that which is good and evil, to decide in the favor of the good and to punish the evil. Again, Deuteronomy 17. If you haven't heard this yet, then we, maybe this is your first time in 2 Samuel with us, right? Because Deuteronomy 17 lays down the law for the king just perfectly in verses 18 through 20. It says this, also it shall be. When he being the king sits on the throne of this kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Why? That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. This practice was to equip, prepare, and enable him to discern between good and evil and to issue last judgments. In fact, that same chapter, Deuteronomy 17, also mentions the role of priests and judges in that capacity. 
But in the fifth straight chapter, five straight chapters here in 2 Samuel, David is going to demonstrate a tremendous lack of discernment. As the saying goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, good. You didn't George W. Bush that one. That's good. You remember? My favorite. Love that clip. In this case, shame on David. This is the third time that David has appeared clueless to the evil plots of his sons. So so one has to wonder if Absalom's smear campaign at the beginning of chapter 15, if it doesn't have an element of truth to it. Maybe there was some truth with Absalom's accusations that there was no one to give judgment in Jerusalem. I mean, we just read about that wise woman from Tekoa. David appears unwilling or unable to discern or judge in a way that purges evil and promotes good in the promised land. And just think of this in contrast to David's son, Solomon, whose wisdom was renowned. A quick comparison of David and Solomon's judgment at the beginning of 1 Kings in the case of the two prostitutes, for example, amplifies the trouble here. Kings are supposed to judge justly. Wise kings do so well. David seems to not only lack knowledge and discernment, but he seems even just hesitant and reluctant to judge. He's reluctant to do his job. So it seems likely that if David was judging justly, that Absalom's seductive words would have had no audience or at least less of one. But trouble with David, remember, is always going to mean trouble for Israel. At this stage in redemptive history, Israel is only as good as her head. And right now her head is ruined. So her body is sick. We do well to remember that David is a son of the first Adam. Redeemed by the grace and mercy of God, yes, but also broken. God called him to his purposes. God established him as king. God granted him his spirit. See, I'm not saying any of this. Even the last couple of weeks, I'm not saying that David isn't redeemed. But I really think the the flow and point is is that he's not the redeemer. That's what we need to be reminded here. David is redeemed, but he's not the redeemer. Instead, David is a bent and broken man. He is not going to be the head that is going to bring healing to the body. He can't. He's sick and he himself needs to be healed. By the way, you know that the Old Testament teaches us the same, don't you? We're not the head either. You and I, we've been exiled in our sin against a holy and just God. The Old Testament makes this crystal clear that blessing comes through the man of God's own choosing. You can think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 in the promised seed of a woman. Then Abraham becomes the conveyor of that promise. It's then passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob. The promise has actually recently come to David himself as the Lord promises to raise up one of David's son after him that will establish a kingdom that will last forever. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they weren't perfect, but they were the chosen conveyors of the promise of God. The blessing of God, relationship with the Lord was directly related to how one related to them. And I say all this to help us understand that that we can look at David and his failure, but make no mistake, David is still the current conveyor of the promise. David's still the Lord's anointed. 
And to raise a hand against David is to raise a hand against their Lord and King, Yahweh. Israel has trouble because she has a ruined ruler, but Israel also has trouble because she has a seditious son in her midst. Let's take a look at him. Absalom, the seditious son, he's David's third son. And and the reality is after the death of Amnon, by his own command, he was likely the heir to the throne at this point. Kiliab's the second son. Uh, He's never mentioned. In fact, many scholars believe uh, that he's likely dead by this time. And that would make Absalom next in line. Now, it goes without saying, really, that a good Israelite would honor and obey the king. That a good son, happy Father's Day, would happily obey and honor their father. A good son of a king would honor his father as his king. A good son of a king would promote, secure, and maintain the reign of his father. A good son of a king would understand that his words and deeds represent his father, the king. He would aim to represent him well, bearing his image, proclaiming his excellencies, not... Flaunting his faults. Absalom is not a good son of the king. He dishonors his father in word and deed, usurping his power and undermining his rule. Absalom plots to steal the throne from his father, acting like king instead of the son of a king. Absalom here is stealing hearts like his father. And I'm not talking about David, but the serpent. Absalom steals hearts like his father. In fact, this whole scene that we read in our scripture reading, isn't it reminiscent of the garden? Absalom slithers into Jerusalem, begins speaking with a serpent's tongue. He calls into question David's ability or willingness to do what is good and right. He plants the poisonous seeds of discontentment and discord, suggesting that he would be a better ruler. Absalom also does something else like his father. He His tactics are even the same. He combines flattery and force. That's what he does. Absalom combines flattery and force in his tactics to usurp the throne. He does this in verses 1 through 6. In fact, if you just put your eyes on verse 3, he tells each and every one of them who comes to him. Apparently, he doesn't need any further explanation, but he immediately tells them their cause is what? It's good and right. That's one of the devil's oldest lines, isn't it? We're all susceptible to that. We all want to be told that our side is right. You know that, right? In fact, most of us, if we're honest, spend time listening to those who assure us our claims are good and right. But Absalom doesn't just flatter. He also shows force. In verse 5, it says that he would put out his hand and take him. That word take here in the Hebrew, again, it it connotes a a certain amount of force. He seized. It conveys strength and firmness. And so he woos with words and suddenly finishes his seduction with strength. That's a dangerous cocktail. He bears the image of his father, the serpent, very well. Flattery and force serve a wicked plot Capturing the heart of God's people so that they follow after Absalom. Reminiscent of the garden, the seed of the serpent's treason will lead to the expulsion of the seed of the woman and the loss of the kingdom of God. So we see that Israel's problem is they've got a ruined ruler. They also have a seditious son, but 
the real problem that we're reminded of is that Israel is corrupt at the core. Israel is corrupt at the core. How do I know that? You know, they really haven't changed. Israel still wants a king like the king of the nations. All the way back in 1 Samuel 8, this is what they want. By the way, it's not accidental that this whole passage opens up with Absalom securing for himself a chariot, horses, and men to run before them. That's so pivotal because in 1 Samuel 8, when Israel asks for a king like the king of the nations, here comes Samuel. The Lord says, Samuel, okay, give them what they asked for. But Samuel, I want you to give them a warning. And listen to the warning that Samuel gives them in 1 Samuel 8, 11. He says, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. Sound familiar? That's Absalom. So once again, Israel is taken in. Israel still wants a king like the king of the nations. In fact, we see that in the very first verse. Again, after this, it happened with Absalom, provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And as we think about this scene and the trouble it depicts, we do well to remember it does take two to tango. So, so yeah, Absalom seduces. Yeah, Absalom stole their hearts. And yet, we read in verse 13 that Israel's hearts followed after Absalom. So it might be worth remembering that nothing really changes throughout the course of redemptive history in the Old Testament. That might seem like a strange thing to say. Because we know there's so many changes, there's so much history, so many different kings, so many different stories or conversations. And yet, the reality is it's all basically the same. It's just more of God's plan to save sinners that's certainly revealed throughout. But there really is no progress in salvation itself. The promise of Genesis 3.15, it's amplified, it's clarified, yes, but it's never accomplished through any event in Israelite history before the coming of Jesus. So while the story progresses, revealing the love of a holy Lord and his unwavering commitment to rescue his people, there's no spiritual change in Israel after the Mosaic Covenant. See, the law set Israel apart and imprisoned everything under sin all at the same time. The law revealed sin in order to bring Israel and all of humanity to the knowledge of their own hopelessness of building their own tower to God. There was no way to bridge the gap. There was no one to stand. There was no one to mediate. There was no one to reconcile them to a holy God. So we remember from the New Testament, the law made nothing perfect. And so it could not give life, only point to its end. So while the story progresses... It's extremely repetitive. We'll say that. It's going to go a lot like this. Creation, fall, exile, redemption, repeat. Repetitive. Creation, fall, exile, redemption. So it goes. You might choose some different terms to explain that cycle, but it's here, there, and everywhere. And This is just the latest installment of that cycle. David and his kingdom was created, called, established by the Lord himself. David himself fell by taking the forbidden fruit, that is Bathsheba, and killing Uriah. David is judged and spared, but he will experience the exile event that fulfills the pattern. David will be redeemed from exile, building an expectation of a final exodus that will bring us all home. See, Israel and every student of the Old Testament shall be well versed in this pattern. 
My, my, my point here is to show you that Israel was redeemed corporately from Egypt, but they were not redeemed for, from the guilt and power of sin in their corrupt hearts. Their hearts corporately remained uncircumcised. And so no matter what outside external historical things or events take place in the Old Testament, Israel remains corrupt at its core, which is part of that primary message in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Israel continues to follow after her golden calves. Absalom is just her latest one. This is why we're right to understand that this passage in 2 Samuel 15, you know who it's ultimately about? The same character that all the Old Testament's about. Jesus Christ. Hear me out. You say, well, there's no Jesus here. Don't know what you're talking about. Well, listen. This account of a ruined ruler and seditious son that reveals the corrupt core of Israel demands a resolution that you can't find on the pages of the Old Testament. It demands a resolution beyond the capacity of any of the current characters at play. Minus one, the Lord himself. So let me ask you, who is going to get Israel out of this trouble? Who's going to heal their wound, restoring their peace and prosperity? Is it Absalom? David? Maybe a Levite? New judge? Maybe Israel just corporately is going to get it together. They'll rise and overcome. No. It's a new passage telling a very old story. Israel is sick from her heads to the sole of her feet. There's only one character who can intervene. And it's the Lord himself. One character. David realizes this. In fact, the author realizes this and points it out to us in verses 25 and 26. As David is is on his way to exile, he's moving eastward towards the Jordan. Look at what he tells Zadok in verses 25 and 26 of our text. Remember, Zadok and Abathar were the second characters he encounters. Look what he says to them. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. David, in those verses, is appealing to the grace and mercy of God. You know why? Because what else can he do? There's no other character present. There's no one else to appeal to. David has one hope of returning to the city of God. That is the grace and mercy of his Lord. Unmerited favor from his God. David throws himself on the mercy, compassion, and steadfast love of the God who has been his help and refuge from the very beginning. In fact, it reminded me of this text all the way back in the beginning of 1 Samuel where old sinful Eli, the priest, do you remember him? He asked this question in 1 Samuel 2. He's talking to his two sinful sons. And he says this in verse 25 of 1 Samuel 2. He says, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? By the way, this is Eli, the high priest, whose job it is to intercede. He's the one who says this. Of course, it was a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No son of Adam can intercede. So the Lord himself interceded. God the Father sent his son to take on our flesh, becoming a new Adam, a new head. Look at David, the ruined ruler, and then look to Jesus Christ. 
Unlike David, Jesus was never reluctant to declare the truth of his father and spoke only what he heard from him. He perfectly discerned from good and evil and all his judgments are just. You look at Absalom, the seditious son, and then you look to Jesus Christ, who according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, Jesus did not attempt to assert the authority of his father. He established it. He made the power and rule of his father manifest perfectly for all creation to see, all the while declaring the righteous reign of his father, the kingdom of God. Then we look at Israel and her corrupt core. And we look again to Jesus Christ. Jesus was not infected with the sin of Adam. Jesus took on our flesh, becoming like us in every way except for sin. Jesus, unlike the first Adam and all the first Adam's children, by the way, was not seduced by the words of the serpent. Not for a lack of effort on the part of the serpent, but he drove that ancient dragon out in the wilderness, refusing to listen to his flattery or to be seduced by his force. Further, Jesus refused even to be seduced by the serpent's seed. One of my favorite texts in all the Bible is the end of John chapter 2. I remember I got to preach this a couple years ago when we walked through John. Well, that was like a long time ago, wasn't it? John 2, 24 and 25. When the flattery of the serpent came from the lips of the serpent's children, Jesus still refused to, quoting John here, commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man. Which is a corrupt core. Because they would flatter him today and cry out for his crucifixion tomorrow. Jesus knew but would entrust himself to the one who judges justly, the only one who judges justly. When they came to take him by force and make him king in John chapter 6, he slipped away. He did not come to establish another kingdom of this world, but to initiate the kingdom of God and the new creation. Their force was no more effective than their flattery. For Jesus was the righteous ruler the obedient son who came to heal the corruption at our core. That's who he is. The righteous ruler, the obedient son who came to heal the corruption at the core of his people. The very path that David walked in his exile in 2 Samuel 15, down to the brook of Kindron, up to the Mount of Olives, would someday be traveled by a son, the true and better David, Jesus Christ, The promised Messiah would spend his final night in Jerusalem with his closest companions. He would share a celebration of one of the most sacred meals of the Israelite calendars, the Lord's Passover, commemorating the great redemptive work of God in saving Israel from Egypt to Exodus through the the death of the firstborn. Israel was spared not because of her righteousness, but by the grace and mercy of God who provided the blood of the Lamb to cover her sins. And after that meal, Jesus would leave Jerusalem much like David in chapter 15. He again would cross the brook of Kidron, ascend to the Mount of Olives. Jesus would go to the place where God was worshipped by David according to 2 Samuel 15, 32. And there on the Mount of Olives, he would pray, not my will, but thine be done. 
There on the very place that David stood here, pausing to talk with a faithful friend, to come up with a plan to overthrow the council of Ahithophel, there in that very place, Jesus would commit to finishing the work that the Father sent him to do in taking our place under the curse of God. There in that very place where David had a conversation with a faithful friend, Jesus would receive the betrayal and the kiss of his own friend. Unlike David, Jesus would not escape with his life into the wilderness. Jesus would allow himself to be taken to Jerusalem, to be falsely accused and handed over to sinful men who would mock him and abuse him before hanging him on a tree like Absalom. See, Jesus was a righteous ruler who was ruined for us. There he would hang to satisfy the penalty due our sin. The obedient son would hang between heaven and earth in the place of God's seditious children. The lamb of God would ransom ruined sinners so that the true Israel might be born again to him. A people with holy hearts where the corrupted core used to be. Oh, thank the Lord that Jesus is the righteous ruler and obedient son who came to heal our corrupt core. There's one more thing I'd like to draw our attention to here. I don't know if you picked it out this, this week in the reading. But I want you to see something that's pivotal. The trouble in Israel is actually amplified by the faithfulness of a foreigner. The trouble in Israel is amplified by the faithfulness of a foreigner. What do I mean by that? I want you to turn your attention to verses 18 to 21 of 2 Samuel 15. It says, Then all the servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today, since I go I know not where? Return and take your brethren back, mercy and truth that be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. The most loyal, faithful character in Second Samuel 15 is a Philistine from Goth. City of the famed Goliath, practically a stranger to the area. He's an enemy, an exiled one who's been wandering. Here is a stranger. I mean, reading the text, would you expect just reading it greater loyalty or lesser lesser loyalty from this guy? Literally, dude's been here a day. Add to this that David even commands him to go back and, and even blesses him. He's got the blessing secure. He can go back with the blessing in hand. Friends, here's the one who gets it. This is one who understands that it is better to die with the Lord's anointed than to live without him. Here also is a pattern in the Old Testament that we can't afford to miss. In fact, it's no coincidence that these words are reminiscent of David's great-great-grandmother, Ruth. Who said a similar thing to Naomi, you remember? Just as Ruth refused to be separated from Naomi, 
Ittai refused to be separated from King David. He will be with David in life or in death. Here, the oath of Ittai joins the confession of Rahab and Ruth in a threefold witness to the promise of the inclusion of the Gentiles to the people of God. So when the New Testament opens in the book of Matthew, we aren't really completely surprised to find that the only two people commended for their faith are foreigners. Because they see what many of God's people fail to grasp. That it is better to die with Christ than to live without him. Church, think about this. God's word declared our day today. This church, this age, thousands of years before it dawned. In fact, the song of Moses has these words. East of the Jordan, before they moved into the promised land in Deuteronomy 32, it says... They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. What's declared in Deuteronomy is foreshadowed in 2 Samuel 15 with the exemplary loyalty of Ittai, the Philistine. Yet, it was accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, as Paul clearly teaches in Romans 10 and 11. So here we are today, church of, I would presume, mostly Gentiles. We're here by the grace and mercy of God. And we're actually in the line of Ittai the Philistine. Foreigners who've been united to the true and better David. We who were once in exile, at enmity with God and one another, have been brought near by the Lord, by his blood, And we've been reconciled to our God. Now all we know is grace and peace. So let our minds be renewed according to the truth. And let our hearts be stirred up to good works as we take up the ancient oath of redeemed that we see here in our text in 2 Samuel 15, 21. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Is that your cry? In conclusion, Israel has trouble again. Ruined ruler, seditious son that reveals how corrupt Israel's core is. And to think, as bad as it was in Israel, they had the advantage. As corrupt of her core was, the nations were worse and we belonged to them. So we say praise God for the gospel of his son who redeemed ruined sinners like you and I. Let me close with Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, what a great benediction. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we close together in prayer? Gracious Father, oh, how beautiful is your son, Jesus. Thank you. In place of ruined rulers, we have the righteous ruler. 
in place of seditious sons. We have the obedient son. In the place of our corrupt core, we have a renewed heart because of the gift of grace given to us by our Redeemer, Jesus. Lord, would you please give us, your children, the heart of its eye, that we might also say, wherever he is, is where we will be. Whether in death or in life, Father, let us have Jesus. Father, thank you for your son. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We come now to the time of our invitation. Um, Just so you know, I know we've got a busy Sunday. We've got invitation now. We'll have Lord's Supper after that. And then uh, after we dismiss, we'll reconvene for a quick nomination business meeting. Um, But let's focus on the invitation right now, shall we? Uh, You recognized um, that all this world has to offer is a ruined ruler, seditious sons, and corrupt cores, right? Do you recognize that? See, this is the problem is that we don't. We don't. Right right now we do, but then tomorrow we'll turn on the news and we'll be putting our hope in sons of men and rulers of men and in our own core to be able to discern and judge that which is right. Friends, recognize every single day that there is but one righteous ruler and it's the obedient son who came to heal us of our corrupt core and your only hope in life is him. He is all we need. He's all we have. Celebrate that as a Christian. Walk like your life depends on that truth each and every day. Do not disconnect what happens in this building with this hour or hour and a half or some days like today, two hours. Don't disconnect what happens here with what happens everywhere. This actually is the fuel that drives your own thoughts and intentions. The Spirit of God dwelling among His people corporately together in the local church where His word is complained. Celebrate that. Don't walk out this door and disconnect immediately like this is some sort of compartmentalized place of your life. But friends, live your life for Christ because He is our only hope. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You've never really come to the conclusion that you are in need of a righteous ruler it, and the reality is it's, it's because, I can tell you this based on the word of God, it's because you believe that you're a better ruler than King Jesus. And, and you are, in fact, attempting to rule your own heart and life. And friends, how is that going? Honestly, may, maybe it's even going good right now. But let me ask you as a pastor who has been at many deathbeds, it will not go well when that day comes. Because you will view that day and recognize very quickly your inability to save yourself from the great enemy of death. Maybe you recognize now that you should not be the ruler of your life. Friends, let me tell you the truth of the gospel. That we were created to honor and glorify our God in heaven. We were created to glorify him, to make his image known. It was our very purpose in creation. And yet, because of the sin of our father, Adam, we were broken from that very purpose. We instead did exactly what it is you're doing and served our own purposes instead. We, instead of worshiping the creator, have worshiped the creation, including ourselves. And that is broken and bent and it's deserving of God's just and right punishment because we've broken his law. He's declared that punishment to be death. Not just physical death, which we all experience, but eternal death separated from him, spiritual death, an inability for us to make our lives right on our own. And that's really bad news for us hearing this. How can we therefore make our lives right? Right. 
How therefore can we have a right relationship with our creator? Well, the beauty of the gospel is our father, God, sent his son, Jesus, fully God and fully man to live the perfect life that we should have lived but could not live in our sin. And then in the the most gracious act of history, the father put the sins of rebellious people onto his son and crushed his son and in crushing his son gave us the righteousness that he earned on behalf of his people. So that because of the cross, the father can now look at seditious sons like you and I as if they're obedient, as if they had never sinned, even though we know that's not the case. All we have to do to receive that free gift of salvation, to be seen in our father's eyes as righteous, is repent of our sins and believe in that gospel. Turn away from attempting to be a righteous ruler in your own life or understand that you are ruined and instead turn to King Jesus as ruler over all. Place your life in his hands. Trust him. Trust what he's done on the cross for your behalf. Trust in his resurrection to accomplish the vindication of that sacrifice. Rest in his work now interceding on your behalf that stirs you to love and obedience in him. All you have to do to be saved is believe the gospel. So I leave you with that. Do you believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, then maybe there's some steps you need to take. We saw some of those steps this morning in believer's baptism, baptism into the local church membership and and church membership in itself. If the Lord's leading you and stirring you on to greater acts of faithfulness, then please let us know at the end of our service. We'd be happy to help you. But the most important thing is that you know Jesus The answer to that is even a a possibly or a maybe. Don't leave without grabbing one of us by the hands. The business meeting can wait. We can all wait to watch the Lord do work. Praise God for his beautiful gospel message and his word.